Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi, joined again by AFL legend Warren Treadray. And Treaders, we're tackling a major global issue with a world-leading expert this episode. Yeah, that's right, Monty. Um, Let's face it, now on this show, we've talked a few times about sports washing, where governments and corporations invest in big dollars in sports sponsorships in an effort to improve their reputations. Well, we've seen countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar and the Arab Gulf states in particular throw huge amounts of cash at the biggest sporting events and organisations all over the world. And quite literally, just about every major sport has been impacted. But many sports fans want to know the bigger picture. Why? What does it mean? And what's at stake for all parties affected? So today, we're tapping into the insights of someone who knows this world better than many. That's right. Joining us is Dr. David Roberts, an Associate Professor and Senior Lecturer at King's College in London. He is the theme lead in the School of Security Studies for Regional Security and Development. Dr. Roberts is also adjunct faculty at Science Po's Paris School of International Affairs and a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute, Washington. He's also the author of the newly released Security Politics in the Gulf Monarchies. Previously, Dr. Roberts was the director of the Qatar Office of the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies. Dr. Roberts's primary research interests focus on comparative politics, international relations, security and defence matters on and around the Arab Peninsula. Welcome, David. Fair to say I'm feeling a fair bit out of my depth. It's an honour to have you on the show. What a pleasure. Happy to chat. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Now, David, before we get into the, the big topic, can you just give us a little bit of um, some background on your research and what you're focusing on at the moment? So I started off, as, as you kindly sort of noted, in the think tanking world. That was my first proper job after many jobs in bars and pubs and stuff. But in the academic world, you know, that sort of set me on a, on a course in the sense that I was interested in the pragmatic realities of what is happening and why does it matter for governments or companies or the public more generally. So I'm sort of interested in understanding what our friends in the Gulf monarchies are up to and translating it, uh, as it were, for sort of uh, people who are interested uh, if, for whatever reason. And so you know, my PhD, just very, very, very briefly, was Qatari foreign policy. You know, what, what is it doing? You know, because there was very little written on it 10, 15 years ago, a lot today. But this is a state that was doing all sorts of funny bits and pieces for mediation, buying, um, uh, investing a lot of uh, in, in sporting events, um, all sorts, uh, education initiatives, and no one really knew what it was about. So it's just unpacking sort of contemporary interesting stuff and trying to work out, you know, how it, how and why it matters. And so on that trend still, what can I say? Um, yeah, still trying to work out what's going on. Well, given your expertise, um, we want to sort of get some understanding as, you know, the real wider context here. And, you know, what has led for countries um, to get so heavily involved in sport and globally, like the Saudis' $400 billion, billion sovereign wealth fund, the Crown Princes wanting to buy sporting clubs. What, what's the real reason behind it? 
There are loads of reasons. Uh, this is the thing, you know, uh, you know there the, are the many different truths to many different people. I'm not sure there is one single solitary answer. So we need to look at it kind of case by case. And even then, you know, two things can be true at the same time. And a lot of this we can think of in the context of sport washing. This is the phrase that we all sort of talk about and use. And to a degree, I understand that, and that, that makes a certain amount of sense. It is entirely plausible that some of these entities like the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund or whomever, whichever institutions, they are interested in, you know, the, the essence, I think, of the, the word sports washing is distraction in many ways. So maybe they are using it to distract away from uh, local difficulties, from a difficult history, whatever it may be. That's a reasonable interpretation. People can follow through with that as it were. At the same time, I think it's not just about the distraction. It is about leadership wanting to fundamentally rebrand their states. So again, sticking with Saudi Arabia, I mean, what was the reputation of Saudi Arabia in the 70s or in the 80s? Um, if it was known for anything around the world, it was they had a lot of oil. They're very rich, presumably. And they were members of the oil cartel OPEC, the, the leading member in OPEC. In the 70s, oil prices went through the roof. Oh, that's the Saudis trying to um, you know, increase market share, get a higher price. So in that, it's oil, richness, slightly negative connotations, of course, coming on to sort of the 90s and, and, and subsequently 9-11, obviously enough, subsequent to that. And there was yet another sort of negative connotation, I think, which is to do with sort of Islamic extremism and all these sorts of issues. And the Saudi leadership today, I think they feel they very, very strongly that they just want to completely reimagine the state. You know, uh, Saudi is an incredibly young state. Two thirds of the population are under 35, 37% are under the age of 14. And these outmoded, as it were, as they would see them, outmoded ideas that don't reflect much of a reality of the kingdom. It has its oil documents and stand me, but Speaking of Islamic extremism, the likes, of, we can go into this, but I wonder if that's a bit of a tangent. But I think that's a very, these days, a very, very unfair, old cliche, um, if, if you will, uh, however true it was to begin with uh, and the likes. And so they want to reimagine, rebrand the state. And they see sport as a very plausible, uh, sensible, the best way to do it in many ways, you know, get some eyeballs on the state in a different way more than anything else. So how did the, the the rebrand process start, I guess, if you maybe, you know, take us back, as you kind of already have done, but but at what point did they go, okay, we need to change things? And and how did they begin the process? And it's really, you know, it's not just Saudi Arabia, it's, you know, a number of the the countries in the region. How how has this transition started to unfold? So, you know, when we think of these things, we need to remember that they are not us and just in if we our our nations if we were going to involve ourselves in these grandiose very expensive ventures perhaps we might expect that in our ministries you know we would have white papers we would have dis discussion about it we would get experts in maybe um but there would be this sort of strategic approach to it in the uk for security and defense we wrote the integrative review you know we write our ideas about how we expect what we're going to do in, in in one particular sphere. Now, with our friends in the Gulf, I don't really think it's quite the same as that. I'm not trying to say it is as simple as one man wakes up in the morning, it's usually a man, of course, and decides to do X, Y, and Z. 
But it's a lot nearer than that than some grand bureaucratic initiative. And so different leaders over time have just sat back and thought and had different ideas about what's important, uh, to be honest. And the contemporary de facto leader in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, um, as he's known, you know, he's, he's, he's a young guy and he's just absolutely wants to completely reimagine the Saudi state. And it's absolutely not just a cosmetic PR element to it. You know, I mean, there very much are the, 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 the frothy aspects of sport, of raves in, in Riyadh, in R-A-V-E. I mean, it's like it's an astonishing concept that in Riyadh you're going to have these dance festivals, but this is the world we're living in. And so aside from flipping things like that, there have been very meaningful changes uh, with women's guardianship roles and those sorts of things. Plenty of things to, you know, still to change. And there are plenty of decisions that we would completely disagree with and we think are awful. So it's still going on in many ways. Of course, this is the nature of it. It's a complex thing. So different individuals come up with plans at different times and they sort of, and they sort of read the room, you know, what's going on. Look, they look across the water, as it were, a little bit to their friends in Abu Dhabi. They look at their investment in Manchester City. It's like, oh, that's quite interesting. Look what they're doing there. They look what the Catries do and did with Paris Saint-Germain and stuff like this. And that's not a bad idea. Let's get involved ourselves. What do you think? Okay, let's do that. Newcastle mm-hmm. um, comes out of this, if you know what I mean. And maybe Manchester United and stuff like this. And so... It's this sort of organic, chatty process um, in many ways. It's not wildly rigorous, I suspect, if you see what I mean. Why sport? I think it's quite simple in many ways. Um, A lot of them are very interested in sport. A lot of these individuals love it, without a doubt. They feel they know a good deal about it. They they watch the Premier League (laughs) a lot as a general rule. It's incredibly um, popular around the world. I needn't tell you, of course, stating the obvious. And so... They they feel they, they like it, they understand it. And more importantly, I guess, going back, you know, if two-thirds of your population are under the age of 35, it's incredibly popular locally. Then if you can sort of, you know, with Newcastle, for example, you're trying to append, sort of stick your club onto the brand of uh, a Premier League team, a potentially successful Premier League team. I think they feel that rubs off nicely internally. And allied to all of this is, the tremendous popularity of it around the world. This is not just the football, of course, but golf or whatever it is. You know, it's it's million, it's billions of eyeballs, to be honest. Um, and you're having your logo put at the front. Your team colours uh, are up there. And, of course, it's, broadly speaking, positive. You know, it's sport. People like sport. They spend their money, their time on it. Uh, amazing amounts of sort of engagement around the world. And so you are... If you want to be negative about it, you are hijacking this thing that people love, or you are just, like I said, appending yourself to it, trying to leverage, borrow the positivity of it or something along those lines. Just on, I mean, you, you touched on the, um, you know, sports washing as it seems to be defined. I mean, we, you know, for the for the sake of media and, and our uh, very kind of short, clickbait articles we tend we tend to pile everything under a term very easily just to simplify it but you know of course there are a lot of human rights organizations and a lot of people that are kind of raising the alarm you know about this and and kind of using sport for this purpose 
Do you think the the concerns are overblown? How warranted are they? How do you, with your knowledge and understanding of what's really going on and the bigger picture, how do you kind of filter through that and see kind of, okay, what is reality in terms of the the concerns, but also what is actually overblown? It's a good question. It's a really difficult question. You know, reality is, is exceedingly messy and complex because you need to be sort of specific with it. So let's look at the World Cup, for example, uh, just gone in Qatar, of course. So Qatar became a magnet for, for criticism, particularly from the UK, Germany, uh, Holland a little bit, I guess, a little bit in America, but not all that much. It seems to be quite a sort of a European focused thing, but you can tell me about uh, Down Under, as, as I would describe it, you know. Um, but it got a lot of focus and a lot of frothy concern about it. And I say that and that's a bit too flippant, I guess. I mean, my point is that there are many things to complain about in Qatar uh, when it comes to the workers' rights, when it comes to the workers who built the World Cup, who built the infrastructure for it. The conditions have been grim for a very long time. As we would see them, they are still grim today. Has the World Cup, did the World Cup improve things? Of course it did, like very significantly. That is true. Is it enough? No, I don't really think so. I don't think we would broadly think so. But there have been improvements there. You know, where are these in, millions of individuals that come from the Indian Indian side of the subcontinent, you know, what choice do they have? Um, they're, they're not leaving high-paid jobs at home to go and work in low-paid jobs in, in Qatar. There's a horrible reality here of they are paid terribly, but terrible is better than nothing. Is terrible good enough? No, of course it's not. But this is the sort of the nuance I think that is 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 tricky to get across. Um, and so, I mean, this is just like like I said at the beginning. This is just more or less a quasi European opinion on this. I think you know if you look at. I don't know, the global south, whatever the phrase might be, maybe the vast majority of people who went to Doha or the vast majority of countries represented there, what was the focus in their press on these things, uh, on those sorts of issues? And minimal, absolutely minimal, which is not to say that they're wrong for not covering it. It's not that the Guardian or whomever in the UK is right for covering it. I, I know the Guardian own a monopoly on truth. Um it is a little bit more complicated quite a lot of the time, I guess is my point. Um, but yeah, to speak about it, you sort of need to be specific. Um, our friends in the kingdom, you know, I mean, there are many things we would vehemently disagree with. Uh, I, I'm sure that, that their ongoing sort of policies have things improved like night and day tremendously. Well, that is true as well. <laughs> this is the the nuance that is, you cannot get across in the, in the headline. You know? How do the nations deal with the uh, the PR pushback? Now, yeah, you mentioned Manchester United now. They don't look to have taken over the US to a certain extent of professional sports or Australia because there's some private ownership but some not. But it, it looks as if um, this is happening big time in Europe. Clearly, you touched on the EPL. So how do they deal with the negative side of this pushback? Ignore it or is there any counter, counter ways they do anything? I think generally speaking, they are hugely frustrated and irritated by it. No one sits there and thinks we are bad people. We are doing things terribly here. They think that they are doing broadly well, as it were. They are giving jobs to millions of people who are sending billions of dollars of remittances back to Southeast Asia, which or East Asia more generally, um, Indian subcontinent more generally, I should say. Um, so there's, there's, there's truth there. Um, 
the how they the respond to the oh just yeah, around their negative pushback. Yeah, so with bitterness, first of all, I, I guess, but then you know they, they try to work with their sort of PR agencies and, and the like to sort of improve the the focus. But I think more and more they're sort of realizing that you know if you do want to invest in Newcastle or another Premier League club, you've just got to deal with it. There is not a huge amount that can be done. And aside from sort of sport, thinking of defence sales to the Gulf, for example, it's been going on for an extremely long time. And there's a vociferous newspaper coverage of this um, for understandable reasons about British or wherever weaponry being used in Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they don't like, our friends in the Gulf don't like this kind of negative coverage. You know, it's, it's very difficult for them, but they complain to, you know, contacting government and whatever, but the Guardian is impervious. There are these layers uh, of institutions in in the West more generally that, you know, you, you can't just chop through them and, and get what you want. So they deal with, with difficulty um, because they don't have any option, um, to be honest. The price, part of the price. Yeah, and I, I think also what gets lost in the in the conversation about this is that you know sports washing by, by definition is used by all governments everywhere. I mean, even in in Australia, governments uh, throw a lot of cash at sport, and all in the name of improving their own reputation. So, so what we're talking about isn't isn't new, and it's all countries are engaged in it on some level. Yeah, indeed. I mean, this is where you slip down the slope and you yeah. get accused of whataboutery. Now, in, in a methodological way, I don't agree with the concept of whataboutery. I think that other things are relevant um, and might not be entirely germane, but I think it's important to bring these things in. So in this broader conversation, I often bring up, you know, uh, apropos of not much maybe, but the war in Iraq, you know, I mean, I'm British, I wasn't for it, but in my proverbial name, ultimately, half a million Iraqis died in this. And, you know, it's classic whataboutery to people who think it's ridiculous for you to bring that in. Um, and, you know, they've got a philosophical coherent point, if you see what I mean. It's not germane to the subject that we're speaking about. But I, I happen to think that it's relevant in the sense that we don't own a monopoly on what is correct and right. And arguably some of the things we've done in fairly contemporary history are extraordinarily grim as well. Um and so it's it's just deeply complicated um, in in a world where people like black and white yes and no's and goodies and baddies. Is it cause for concern? Depends on who you are. Um, if you, what what can I say? I'm such a, such an academic. Depends on the nuance, yeah. doesn't it? So if you are a, a quote unquote legacy fan, you know, if you if your three generations have gone to St James's Park, then you might look in this and think, well, this yeah. is amazing. We are going to get a huge cash injection, so we will be challenging for honours like we haven't done since the late fifties or something last time uh, Newcastle won. Yeah, well, it's funny, isn't it? Because the previous ownership, if we look at Newcastle, they were spewing on um, Mike Ashley. He owns a big sports giant um, because he didn't put enough money in because <laughs> they just wanted to win. So it probably tells yeah, you where exactly. the, the, exactly. the discussion or the the affecting my own moral compass really comes from. You know what I mean? Some people just think, oh, well, he's been good and we've made lots of money and we've won games. Other people will take it deeper. Is that fair? Well, certainly. So your legacy fan might be thrilled with it, as we're sort of saying, you know, now, thank God we've got Mike Ashley, someone who's willing to invest. Yeah. At the same time, a different legacy fan who takes more of a purist's approach might think, oh, that, that our historic institution 
it's being treated as a commodity, whereas it's a, a club, it's this community thing. They might see this as, you know, this is the, the straw, the bricks, the camels, whatever it is, you know, that is just an absolute tragedy that this century old institution is being leveraged by these foreign people. And you go down the usual sort of sports washing sort of uh, critiques. And that is, you know, a coherent point in, in its own way. Um, then the worry comes. So that's from the club level, from the league level more generally. Depends who you are. The Premier League, you know, uh, leaders, the Premier League sort of institution, they're absolutely thrilled. The Premier League is, you know, astonishingly competitive. Um, the most um, eyeballs on the screen of any kind of league, I think, in the world, pretty much. Um, so they're thrilled by it. Now, the knock-on effect of that is things like the European Super League, because Real Madrid, uh, Juventus, Barcelona, they are desperately struggling to keep keep up with the financial capacity of these English clubs. And so that drove them into the Premier uh, Super League um, plans that were drawn up and, and dropped very swiftly. A bit of a, a redux of those a couple of months ago. And so, you know, each to their own. What can I say? I mean, I sort of ultimately sit there. I'm, I'm a fan of Middlesbrough, so I'm, I don't really have a dog in the fight. My, a nice local yeah. owner, uh, a local lad made good. Um, but were, you know, some sovereign wealth fund to buy Middlesbrough. I mean, I'm, I've never been a season ticket holder. I love my club and all. So I can be a little bit more dispassionate about it. But my yeah, dispassionate nature does not characterize most football fans or other sports fans, does it? That's the truth. I mean, as you've just said, one of the the knock-on side effects is, you know, you do start seeing in sport a case of the haves and the have-nots, you know, where you do have these cashed-up teams. My my team has the has the cashed-up Saudi owner. You've got the the local boy made good who's just scrapping away with with his cash trying to keep up. I mean, that is a very real threat to um, the sustainability and viability of sport in itself if we do start seeing this um, this stuff get out of balance. No, you com- you're completely right. I mean, you mean you are. I mean, aside from I mean, there is a generally, there's a philosophical argument here that, you know, clubs shouldn't be seen. They should be more interpreted as they are in Germany, say, as more local cultural community aspects of, of the fabric rather than purchasable commodities. But that ship has pretty much sailed, at least in, in England or, or, or the UK. Um, but yes, I mean, it's, it's, a deep, deep problem for the sort of level playing field competition issues with, without a shadow of a doubt. And you look at the money that, you know, Barcelona furiously trying to, you know, as the phrase goes, use all these levers, all these sort of debt commodities for uh, mortgaging the future of the, of the club by, you know, selling a stake of future revenue of shirt sales or whatever it is to a, to a US kind of sovereign wealth fund or, or to a US investment broker at least because they are so desperate to try to keep up. And I mean, on, on the specific case, I guess that's a real worry when you think of mm. financial viability and the likes. But yeah, on, on a sort of looking across the leagues, um, if it does transpire that, you know, in the next 10 years, it is English Premier League clubs that are in the final of the, of the leading competitions, you know, 80% of the time or something that's you know, money talks. I mean, money is very clear in football. You know, the people who spend the most on wages do the best. It's very clear. And if you do get that, then you're going to have a reaction um, and a reaction that 
fans are probably not going to really like. Yeah, and you mentioned the money, and that's where, let's face it, the world has gone to. More, everyone wants more. Everyone wants an abundance of money, um, and sport is no different. But there's probably two glaring um, ways of sports washing, and one is ownership, which we've touched on. But not all countries around the world um, have private ownership. Um, here, the biggest sport in Australia is, is AFL, and I guess maybe some of that um, – uh, getting their claws into the game comes through the sponsorship side. You pay the excess money, they're owned by the governments, um, and all of a sudden you carry weight that way. There, there, there really is the two different looks, and the sponsorship side potentially is the more cloak and dagger side of it. Yeah, potentially. I mean, in the UK at least, sorry to bring it back to to, good. to, to the Northern Hemisphere or wherever, just what I know a bit better, but I mean, the, the key sort of sponsorship issues that come to mind are to do with betting yeah. companies. Uh, it's not even the sort of the sovereign wealth fund world, really. It's not the PIF uh, that's on the on this on the so many Premier League shirts. It's either weird cryptocurrencies, which often seem to go bust, or betting companies that you know are based out in I don't know Asia somewhere. What are their rules? Do they are they compatible with the rules that we sort of notionally expect in the UK or wherever? Quite often not. There's been some wonderful investigative work done into that. And so, yeah, I mean, but this is, again, exactly to your question and your point. You know, I mean, Nottingham Forest came up this year and to, my, to the best of my knowledge, they still don't have a shirt sponsor. Uh, they actually gave it to UNICEF for free. But they feel this, they didn't want to give it away to, good, I guess, to the, to the lowest common denominator there. But that's pretty unusual, to be honest. Usually, everyone is desperate for that extra half a million. And if you can get it from some just a sequence of letters and numbers, which is actually some curious betting site online. You know, that's that's what's the look of it. Yeah, and Barcelona did that years ago too. Um, I think it was UNICEF with when Messi's yeah, probably the most marketable player in the world and arguably still the greatest player in the world. Um, but now they find themselves in financial issues because they've they've paid out too much money on players and effectively chased success. So it's that fine line, isn't it? Completely right. It's it's the desperation to chase it and the risks you take and, you know, um, too big to fail is a, is, a, is a line we've come across in recent times. And that really, I think, applies to Barcelona. So far, so good for them. But yeah, who knows? This is the the pressure to try to, uh, to keep up with the Joneses. Well, it is quite a test for sport, as we're saying. Um, there's this ongoing hunger and need for money. Um, and and the reality is, particularly the you know the guys out of the Gulf states are going to be putting a lot of money up. So very tempting for an organisation that that needs the cash. What what would you say these organisations need to consider and be wary of as they weigh up an opportunity, particularly from the Gulf states regions, in terms of what does it mean? Obviously, we you know there's the potential PR backlash and whatever that might involve, but but even what does it mean? politically in terms of engaging with these states? So that speaks to a really tricky question, which is broadly about the concept of to engage or not to engage, I think, in, 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 a, in a big piece. So we want things to uh, improve. Do we not? Of course we do. We, we think we have the secret sauce of democracy and human rights and everything else. And I think that as well. I'm brought up in the UK and I'm Broadly speaking, very chuffed to be from the UK. Millions of disagreements with all sorts, but broadly speaking, I'm content. And I think we're broadly right, as it were. But I don't have the sort of hubris to think that, and therefore, 
uh, it is for me to tell everyone else how to be right or to demand of them that they sort of mirror me. And But nevertheless, I want to encourage good behaviors that we would entirely agree on here, you know, and the question is how to do it. So this is this really big question of do you do it, thinking back to sort of South Africa apartheid, of blanket bans, of what they're doing we think is absolutely abhorrent. And our solution is to try to cut them off and to pressure them into stopping this awful thing and rejoining the, the sort of the wider community. That's an entirely logically coherent sort of um sort of an approach. And to take that to the Gulf states, I mean, not to make the apartheid comparison, but if we desperately disagree with X, Y, and Z policies in Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, wherever it may be, we it's logically coherent to think, okay, we want that policy to change, we broadly speaking, let's try to stop relations or whatever the phrase is in order to pressure them into making changes. Logically coherent. I don't think that's going to work, though. I think we live in a very multipolar world. And if we, the UK or whomever, were to shut up shop and say, we're not selling you anything, we're not engaging, we think you're awful in the following ways and these things need to change, I think they would broadly shrug their shoulders and think, well, hokey-dokey, fair enough, and go and get whatever they needed from elsewhere. Um, I suppose the Premier League isn't that you know, fungible. There's nothing exactly equivalent. But... I don't think that's a viable policy. And so my broad approach, my thoughts are, I think we need to engage and we need to look at Saudi Arabia and Newcastle and say the enormous kerfuffle that there has been uh, about Saudi ownership or the Qatar World Cup uh, bringing up, um, you know, um, any and all issues from women's rights to workers' rights uh, to trade unions demanding more access to uh, rights for sexual minorities. I think that we can look at this on the good side and think they wanted all of this. They wanted the PR, as it were, on their terms, and they kind of got it in many ways. They've got the eyeballs around the world. But we are adding where we can, and we are pressuring where we can. And before the World Cup, you did see Qatar reluctantly and difficultly, without any doubt, but changing slowly uh, labor policies. As fast and as far as we would like? No, absolutely not. But changing incrementally. And so I think that sort of pragmatic incremental approach is is the one to take. Now, to critique my sort of approach here, as it were, it is often difficult to point to the UK or whomever engaging and changing policy X. It is really often difficult to do that because it's a desperately complicated world. But until I see some more pers- more persuadable, uh, more persuasive uh, alternative, whereby policies X, Y, and Z are going to change in a different way through different means, I'm going to engage broadly speaking and encourage people to engage, as it were, um, with with open eyes and to try to change the things that we think ought to be changed. Um, it's our prerogative, it's their prerogative to reject it, but if you want to buy a Premier League club, then this is the part of the package. Yeah. If the F1s are under pressure for racing um, in Saudi Arabia, now FIFA knocked back a uh, visit from the Saudis as um, a sponsor for the Women's World Cup after copying a lot of heat, as you said. So do you think we're right in protecting sport because it is the obvious one? Well, some 
well, many bodies are not protecting sport for a start. Again, the Premier League is has its is a specific phrase of fit and proper owners yeah, test. I yeah, might be yeah. down the league, but this that they have the sentiment. Um, I'm not wildly sure how pragmatic it is in reality. Um, so some sports are very accommodating, and under a lot of PR pressure, sports will turn down some opportunities uh, for public relations sort of gambits like that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think the the examples you sort of highlight are a little bit niff-naff and trivia compared to what we spoke about like 10 minutes ago. You know, the fundamental financial doping, if you will, of the leagues. And under the same bucket, I don't. I personally don't like the sovereign wealth funds of any country in the world investing. I don't really want American billionaires investing in, I consider it to be my sport. Everyone does. You know, I don't think this is a good thing either. Uh, whether we, whether it's whether it was the Finnish sovereign wealth fund, you know, the most benevolent state on earth, you know, it's the principle of the huge piles of money coming in. I've got a problem with uh, as much or more than the whomever gives the money, and so I think it's that structural issue which is more of a problem as opposed to a couple of you know specific deals here or there that. I'm not really sure change the course of much. I just want to come back to your point on fans that that you guys were talking about and the you know the fan that cares versus the fan that doesn't. I mean, you know, as as a as a big sports fan, we all want our team to be well funded and well supported, but but would you suggest or would you call on fans to perhaps get more educated and take more of an interest in where the money's coming from and how it comes about and and whether their values align with that and and kind of the bigger picture that we're talking about. Is this something that fans should really get invested in? I think so. And I think that's kind of transpiring. I think fans definitionally are desperately engaged in their club, whatever it may be. And so from fans forums to the podcast industry to going to the games and, and so on, more often than not, there's a huge thirst for information and there's a lot of engagement with the issues. Now, you know, how much is it plausible to understand, you know, um, is a really difficult issue. I've been studying the Gulf States for like 15 years or something like that. And, you know, I think I understand what's going on, but goodness, I get surprised a fair bit. And so it, again, there isn't one final understanding to arrive at. Ah, now I grasp what the issue is. It's more about getting a decent overview of what's going on, hopefully a bit of the nuance, the shades of grey, and then thinking where that sits with you as an individual and whether that means you are glazers out or you're looking for a catery ownership or whatever it may be and how that fits into your sort of personal approach, I guess. Well, I'm an Arsenal fan, so it was cronky out, but now we're happy because we're sitting top of the league. That's uh, that's probably where the fan, a lot of the fans sit, sadly, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, we've undertreated for 10 years, but oh, we're going well, let, let, let's get this back in. But um, the other side I want to touch on is, you know, the control and the power on this this element, but also valuations getting blown out. You know, we're seeing short shirt sponsors being, you know, um, say, for example, Saudi-owned uh, uh, club, or, or Qatar owned, sponsored by major sponsor Qatar Airways. The normal jersey gets six million pounds, or you know, thirty million dollars Australian or whatever it is, and all of a sudden that valuation has jumped to sixty. So it, it turns into an arms race and manipulation of the the sports um, uh, fair trading too, doesn't it? 
It does. Our friends in um, Manchester City are suffering, as it were, a lot from this specific issue at the moment in that the Premier League have launched dozens and dozens of, I don't know what the phrase is, accusations, cases, um, whatever it may be, about this exact issue of overvaluing sponsorship deals from Abu Dhabi in order to inflate, get past financial fair play uh, scriptures and such. And yeah, that, that, that that's a one way in which, you know, I, I think the Manchester City owners felt they could divert more funds to the club. Um, and it, it has a knock-on effect. Uh, uh, more generally, it absolutely does. But just lingering on Manchester City just very briefly, I mean, c- com- contrasting kind of the Manchester clubs is kind of quite interesting because, you know, when we talk about why Manchester City have engaged, uh, excuse me, uh, why the Emirati owners have engaged in Manchester City, it's really different from the Glazers. Uh, the Glazers are just making potloads of money, uh, in essence. Laurie Whitwell from The Athletic um, tallied up to be they've taken $450 million uh, pounds out of uh, of their initial investment of only 270 the rest being debt, of course. And if they do get this like jamboree sale of X billions to um, the Ineos guy or maybe the Qatari individual, then... The, the profit for the Glazers is just intense. It's a profit-making exercise. Manchester City, on the other hand, you know, I'll, I will defer to someone who knows the books better than I do. But my broader interpretation is that that is more of a, pol- a quote-unquote political investment from kind of Abu Dhabi's estate in many ways, in that they have invested an awful lot of their own money in the infrastructure uh, around, this, around the stadium as well and the wider area. Um I think the aspiration there is, as we've said, it's about eyeballs on TV. It's about leading, having the leading club, having the best manager, having the best striker in the world and hopefully winning the, the, the league and the Champions League and all that. But there is also this element, This it's very hard to sort of define about, is there a political component with the UK? So the UK PLC versus, or with uh, the UAE PLC? Like what? Do the Emirati owners feel they are develop, getting, if anything, um, on the political side of these things? And like genuinely, it's a really tricky thing to work out. This is often spoken about as there is a political component. It's, it's to do with the Emiratis working with the British government, whatever it is, currying favour, something like that. These, But those discussions are always really loose and a bit sort of ethereal because it's really tricky. As in, so what are the Emiratis getting? You know, and it just seems to be an investment more than anything else for, for the eyeballs uh, is the way I see it, rather than the UAE accruing anything else, any any waster, as they would describe it in the Gulf, influence uh, from sort of the British government more generally. But it's another convoluted part of this uh, mosaic. So I guess as we start to wind up the chat, I'm keen to just get your thoughts on what happens next. Like if we can look forward, where, are, where is this whole world of, you know, sports, sports washing as it were and, and the influence of the Gulf states, where is it heading? Are, are there any um, political or, or, or sporting moves that we could expect to see in the, in the years ahead? So, Institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the likes put out some interesting stuff. Well, for me, interesting stuff every now and again, looking at the economics uh, of, of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, so the six Gulf monarchies on the Arabian Peninsula. 
And just before the pandemic, so things will have changed, but they said, you know, extrapolating out based, you know, the, the reality is that the, the economies of the Gulf monarchies are heavily based on oil and gas. We are moving away from that kind of a world. How fast will they transition and the likes? But the IMF said on current projections, the financial wealth, I think was the phrase they used, might be sort of depleted by 2034. Okay, I think that was the date the IMF said. And so my point is not that on 2034, the cupboard runs bare. Um, but my point is that in not a preposterous amount of time, our friends in the Gulf might be in a very different fiscal environment where they it is much trickier to drop 50 million, 100 million, choose a number, on some sort of uh, luxury investment or luxury opportunity, something maybe a bit frivolous like sport. I think that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And so that's the sort of longer term future of that sort of investment, I suspect. Our friends in Qatar are a bit different. You know, Qatar is the population of Wolverhampton in the UK. They're a very small bunch of people with a tremendous um, gas supply. And so they might have money for a bit longer and stuff. But broadly speaking, I guess I'm thinking about the the tapering off of the moment that we are in at the moment. That's one sort of thing I'd say. And the second thing, uh, referring back a little bit to things we've already mentioned, I guess, it's thinking about how the league infrastructure in Europe, again, forgive me for just speaking about football at the moment, but um, or, or soccer, depending on your persuasion, I guess. Um, you know, it's how uh, our Spanish clubs and German clubs are going to maintain the loose parity that certainly is there at the moment. Um, and that what they will feel induced and forced to do in order to try to keep up with sovereign wealth fund-backed, state-backed, clubs. And you've got to have real worries about the integrity of the leagues, about the integrity, the financial integrity of the clubs going forwards. But again, that's that's the worry. How much will come to fruition is I, I really don't know. Yeah, that's um it's interesting and, and thank you for painting the picture. I mean probably the probably the last one that that I would I'm just keen to get your thoughts on. And I have no idea um, you know, where this could be heading, but would would the Gulf states have much of an interest in all of this, particularly with the sporting angle, in Australia? As a you know, it's a it's a long way away. It's a um, smaller economy, um, as as Tred has said, um, less private ownership of sport. But is there any interest or um, concern or preparation that Australia could be doing as part of this um, this kind of move from the Gulf states at the moment? What an interesting question. Um, my initial thought is no, in the sense of you're really, really far away. And I think that an element of this is is kind of what you know. It's how many of our Gulf elite friends have houses in London, grew up in London, kids studied here, they studied here. Those flippant sounding elements of knowing individuals is is really important. And I'm not sure that's that's not as prevalent in Australia. Then there's the broader sort of, I mean, you tell me about the pop external popularity of your domestically popular sports, significantly less so compared to the Premier Leagues and the likes. So investment 
if you don't necessarily have that personal collection, that's one thing. If you're not going to be looking at accruing, you know, some kind of uh, publicity, you know, billions of eyeballs on X or Y Australian sport, then that's another element that suggests they might not be as interested. So those two things are against that sentiment. But more generally, I imagine that it's just a really interesting question. I've never really thought about it. I wish I'd given it some more thought. Um, no, that's fine. I, I just threw it at you at the end. Of, but, I mean, probably the one the one X factor for Australia is potentially hosting global events. So the, the Women's World Cup is the is a classic example where Visit Saudi was knocked back. And there was a lot of pressure from within Australia to not have Visit Saudi involved. So that, that is probably one one reason where that could come up. My my initial yeah that's that's a good point to make of course um but more generally my thought would be that you know if I was an Australian CEO looking at this picture and sort of puzzling about what if anything we could do to engage with our friends in the Gulf I would be thinking about much broader tie-ins in the sense of linking it to education in some way shape or form uh, linking it to Australia as a fully mature. A highly developed nation in in, in in all the facets, and how you do your sports sports marketing locally. You know, maybe you know there's something to be learned about you know a very competitive local industry, sports sporting infrastructure and industries more generally about the competition between them, like the high level of professionalization, and about whether you know there's that sort of tutelage is absolutely not the right word, but it's that sort of element of it's an investment here and that will accrue you X or Y sort of locally. But there's also the sort of look at how we do this Mm. kind of a component. And again, I I say this thinking of Qatar in particular, you know, they've got Education City there, um, World Cup Games are held in Education City. And this is where they've got campuses of Georgetown University, um, Texas A&M, UCL used to be there and the likes. My point being, they have invested very heavily um, in the importance of education and the infrastructure there. And, you know, they don't necessarily want the the, the product, but the knowledge that kind of goes with it. And so I would be thinking about a broader offering, if you see what I mean, rather than this is about 15% stake in this. This is about what else we can hook into this. Because, I mean, they, they, they know that Australia is a... a highly developed and they would love to sort of emulate it in, in many, many ways. So those are my initial thoughts on that, at least. And, and probably a, a few years ago, my old club, Port Adelaide in the AFL, started a partnership with China and that was probably the closest link. That that was all around resources and um, uh, all those sorts of things. So it's probably slightly different, but in a way it's, mm-hmm. it is it is it is doing business, isn't it, um, the reality of all this? Yeah, indeed. I mean... The, the Chinese link is, is an interesting one to bring up. I mean, for our friends in the Gulf, China is ever bigger in, in all sorts of ways. The vast majority of their exports, energy, go to China, needless to say, and East Asia more generally, Japan, and South Korea and the likes. And so they are ever more comfortable selling stuff to China. China engaged in a mediation in the Gulf just a couple of last week between normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which was a really big deal. And so that is maybe the move of China diplomatically into the region. So our friends in the Gulf are completely content engaging to the, to the East as it may be. And somewhat frostier in, in Australia to say the least, of course, 
but yeah, I mean, these random sort of links are are quite important. I, I wrote something just recently with um, uh, another academic in China about what what if anything could China and the UK do in the Gulf in the third party country as a area. And my point was this, you know, British Chinese relations are really frosty, really tricky. But maybe in the Gulf, we we are separated enough from, I don't know, Taiwan and whatever it may be, that maybe there are some innocuous investments that could work together in something of mutually beneficial relationship for China, the UK and our Gulf friends. And I would be tempted to think about the similar sort of logic in, in Australia. But yeah, who knows? I mean, it's, it's a funny old world. You never know what transpires there. That's right. Well, Dr. David Roberts, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. You've really helped us um, understand the bigger picture and um, and kind of get into some of that grey area and, and understand what's really going on. So we really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Big Deal podcast. We're continuing to tackle the big issues in the business of sports. So make sure you subscribe to the show and also join our community at www.thebigdeal.au. Thank you, guys. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.